living in the middle of a pandemic. And I read that before Corona, it was predicted that by 2030, depression would be the leading global disease burden and that mental health costs will increase to $16 trillion. So now with the outbreak of the pandemic, through your lens, how is Corona affecting our mental health and what long-term consequences can we expect? So as you've pointed out already, we face many challenges with mental health, uh, not only uh, being that these issues are quite widespread, but they're also difficult to treat. So there are many patients who are treatment resistant with the current treatments that are available. And coronavirus is only making this worse, uh, being that now um, some of the activities that ward off, uh, for example, depression, uh, just moving around, uh, exercise, uh, being active physically, that is very helpful uh, for keeping people in good mental health. And then, of course, there, there are issues uh, related to uh, enjoying physical presence of other people, touch is very healthy uh, and good for us. And so we're, we're missing all of these uh, important parts of, of life that contribute to positive mental health. And so people that are on the margins uh, may fall into uh, mental health issues, not to mention the fact that you know, millions of people are uh, you know, uh, without a job who were you know, working before and so on and others who, who still need work. And so I think uh, they're just, it, it's compounding the challenge, uh, absolutely. And, and I remember uh, we in Sweden didn't actually really have a lockdown when uh, things hit in March this year. However, because of uh, my mom is in a risk zone, I decided to stay home during the six weeks at least because we didn't really know what it was and you didn't want to go out and figuring out so it was better to stay home and I remember that when I decided to 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 go out and and meet with some friends uh, at a restaurant actually it was very difficult for me I felt like in the beginning when I came into the restaurant I didn't know how to greet people uh, um, and, and the second of all, uh, they all were like, come on, go on and sit. And I was a little bit feeling like, uh, no, I, I think I'm going to stand here a little bit. So it can be also like subconsciously, right? Like the fear somehow isolate us. Uh, and, and that can be very, very dangerous. Uh, even if you're not suffering really from the depression, it creates um, bad habits and, and emotions. Um, now you're, of course, you're, you're a doctor, I mean, in terms of uh, research doctor, of course, and you've been a research associate at the University of British Columbia, as I mentioned. Tell us how you ended up there and about your experience and the findings in the lab. Sure, sure. And before I do, just building on your point about how this has disrupted uh, everyday life, uh, speaking with my colleagues in the consumer neuroscience world where we're interested in, in implicit processing. And, and basically, uh, you know, for example, I was talking with Sarah Yu, who's another cognitive neuroscientist and discussing how this, uh, this COVID situation makes a lot of what's usually non-conscious conscious. 
So we are uh, burdened with having to think consciously about all kinds of things we just took for granted before, you know, whether to sit and stand or uh, sit down, whether to you know, shake hands or not, you know, how to greet someone, whether, uh, you know, to, to um, you know, speak loudly or not, or, you know, how much can we laugh and stuff. These, all these things that just are you know, natural for us or were, you know, are now top of mind. We have to think about them consciously. And so we kind of can sustain a certain amount of burden on our attentional resources, but now that's really been inundated by this additional need to pay attention to everything. So I think that that also kind of makes it difficult for everyone. And again, people on the margins are gonna find this too much to handle um, as far as uh, mental health is concerned. Um, and we're all suffering. So, but as far as, uh, yes, so my work at, at uh, University of British Columbia, so I had the opportunity to do really fascinating research there uh, with Alan Young. Uh, I was also working with Tony Phillips. These are, these are folks uh, who are in the mental health uh, field. Alan Young is now at King's College London in, in the UK, but we uh, did a project where we were interested in neuroplasticity in music. Uh, so neuroplasticity is related to so many different mental health issues. Um, you can think of stroke, you can think of uh, depression, which is related to uh, certain patterns that develop in the brain around rumination and negative uh, thinking. Uh, so how can you change the brain in a way that's more healthy? This study was was looking at how to change epigenetics in the brain uh, using a drug commonly used as a mood stabilizer, as a brain stabilizer for bipolar depression and also for epilepsy. It's uh, called valproate, valproic acid. It's known by uh, other names as well. Uh, but it has this unique feature in that it actually blocks uh, a certain enzyme that prevents the expression of genes. So someone who's taking this will actually have a change in their epigenetic expression of genes related to learning um, that are present early in life in what's called a critical period of learning. So we were interested in seeing, could we take the adult uh, human brain and change the epigenetic state so it's more malleable like it is early in life? And we used as a test for this, uh, learning of absolute pitch or perfect pitch, sometimes called. This is where you can name musical tones uh, just by hearing them without any reference. Uh, and you basically have to learn this by the time you're about nine years of age. If you haven't figured, uh, picked it up by then, you, you probably won't. So it's called a critical period uh, ability. It's, it's related to crit a critical period of learning. So we gave, we, this was a randomized uh, placebo-controlled trial. We had one group uh, of young adult men who took valproate, another group that took uh, a placebo, and they underwent training for uh, during a period while they were taking the drug for two weeks, and then they came back and we tested them to see if, uh, see how they did on uh, this absolute pitch uh, skill and found that the valproate group had significantly improved relative to random chance and also relative to the, uh, the placebo control group. So that was, that was quite fascinating. Uh, and it opens the door to thinking about uh, how we can use epigenetics to 
uh, help uh, to change the brain in ways that are meaningful and interesting. Uh, this was this was quite a it was a collaboration with obviously psychiatry uh, so people that knew about valproate and how to use that safely but also epigeneticists and uh, we had Takao Hench from Harvard uh, we had Michael Kobor who's a, a geneticist uh, we had Janet Worker who's a developmental psychologist interested in critical period learning uh, so it was a fantastic uh, cross disciplinary effort uh, at UBC. And, and when you got those findings, what did you guys do with it? You, of course, you wrote, I'm, I'm sure, a paper about it, but also there, there's a challenge between research and the real world is that it really needs a bridge in between. And how do we take the research uh, we, we conduct and implement it so we can actually reach out to more people and, and help it? What is your take on that? Is, is that possible and how? Yes, uh, so this this was published. It would be absolutely viewed as uh, a pilot, uh, a pilot study, a first exploration into this kind of work in humans. Uh, similar research had been done uh, with animal models uh, by Takao Hench and others, but this kind of brought it into uh, an option for working with with humans, with people. So. Uh, the next step is going to be building on this, looking at larger samples, uh, looking at potential clinical uh, groups that might benefit, uh, and basically moving the knowledge forward. Uh, so uh, a hypothesis seems to have some support for it in, in terms of being able to change the epigenetic state of the brain in the adult um, human, and let's see what we can do to help people with that knowledge.